You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome back to the China Geopolitics Podcast on what can best be described as the end of a tumultuous week in mainland China. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post, speaking to you from our studios here in Hong Kong. After a week of escalating zero-COVID protests in cities across China came the news of the passing of former President Jiang Zemin, resulting in an outpouring of nostalgia for his decade as China's leader and inevitable contrasts to the style of geopolitics we're witnessing in this decade. It's also a week where the US has escalated its sanctions on the supply of semiconductor technology to China, and three weeks since US President Joe Biden signed into law his historic Inflation Reduction Act with huge implications for the supply chain building EVs, electric vehicles, an industry which is deeply entwined with manufacturers in mainland China as well as Europe. And it's this ongoing tech war on China's access to semiconductors and the launch of an attack on its supply of components for electric vehicles which is causing more than a little consternation for Joe Biden's allies in Europe. North American Bureau Chief Rob Delaney will be with me to talk about this looming battle over lithium batteries and the electrical vehicle revolution, as well as reporting on some somewhat undiplomatic behaviour at the UN Security Council over the death of Jiang Zemin. And our European correspondent Finbar Birmingham is going to report on the European Council President Charles Michel landing in Beijing for a one-on-one visit with President Xi Jinping, just as his government grapples with nationwide protests as well as the death of a beloved former leader. And Finbar's got more on the fracturing of the great alliance Joe Biden had hoped to build with Europe in competing with China, and how the EU might just be able to reach out and work with China while maintaining its strategic independence. Let's get amongst it. Rob Delaney is the South China Morning Post Bureau Editor for North America. It's nighttime in Washington, D.C. It is a grey old Friday morning dawning here in Hong Kong. Josan, good morning, Rob. Good morning, Jared. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. And normally our conversations revolve around the policies and decisions of China's President Xi Jinping. But the global discussion, the global news narrative about China is now all about Jiang Zemin and the legacy of his term as President of China from 1993 to 2003. You just dropped a story a couple of hours ago talking about what's been going on at the UN. Tell us what's happened. Yeah, well, there was a UN Security Council meeting that was called to discuss a uh, a resolution on uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. Uh, however, because of the death of Jiang Zemin, Ghana was the uh, w- was leading uh, the uh, UN Security Council. And he called for a moment of silence to respect the life of Jiang Zemin. And everyone around the tables duly uh, stood up. Uh, There was a moment of silence. And then they got down to business about the resolution. And not all of the members of the Security Council were delivering remarks about this. But the ones that did, and I believe there were 12 or 13 uh, that had uh, made their speeches, they prefaced them with their expressions of condolences to China over the death of President Jiang. Uh, but notably, uh, the delegations that did not make that move were uh, the US, the UK, and India. They sort of just launched right into their discussion about the resolution that was on the table. And it was also interesting that we, we reached out to the State Department just to ask, will there be any official statements we got a message back saying we will your your query is noted 
uh, we will get back to you. Uh, but there was no response. And in the end, uh, the, you know, again, going back to yesterday, Wednesday, they, uh, there, there was no response issued uh, or there was no uh, announcement about it. Uh, I should say, however, that the U.S. ambassador to Beijing, Nicholas Burns, he did send out a tweet uh, offering his condolences to China on uh, the death of Jiang Zemin. It was fairly standard. Uh, it was very respectful. It was very dignified. Uh, but I think it's, it is interesting to note that there was nothing official released by the State Department, as uh, many other uh, countries did. It's also worth noting that India also, they, they did send, uh, I believe it was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that had sent a, a, a message on WeChat uh, expressing their condolences. Uh, but, that, but it was interesting to watch the Security Council meeting and, and see the, the, the differences and see who emerged as feeling the need to express their condolences. And those countries included Ireland, Finland, I believe, and then we also had the uh, United Arab Emirates. And uh, of course, the Russian Federation uh, had one of the more uh, lengthy expressions of their condolences also. So yeah, there's, you know, you, you, can, you can see the subtle differences in terms of the various uh, states of health in terms of bilateral relationships with China. Rob, I think almost every article being published by every news organization uh, and every tweet I've seen or, or string of tweets ends up including uh, the YouTube clip of Jiang Zemin on American TV speaking with Mike Wallace, uh, enthusiastically switching between Mandarin and English and showing this sort of great charisma. I'm wondering if this is contributing to any discussion on the reflection about the state of the US-China relationship right now, comparing the, you know, the bonhomie of Jiang Zemin and Bill Clinton with where we are now with relationships between these two superpowers? Well, yes, that's certainly, that, that's the theme when that footage is trotted out. Uh, just the, the fact that Jiang Zemin really seems to understand the attitude of the U.S. government and to, to, un, he understood how to connect with the sentiments of the U.S. government and, and I think more broadly the broader American public at the time. Now, of course, that will bring up the, the debate about was Jiang Zemin genuinely interested in everything? Was he fully behind everything that he was talking about in those interviews? Of course, many of the China hawks will say, well, of course, that's how he presented himself, because at that time, China's economy was just a, barely a fraction of what the U.S. economy had. Their military was was almost non-existent compared with what the U.S. had. So, of course, they were going to sort of play this game where they were they were seen as being open to the kind of reforms that the U.S. government wanted. And then, of course, you, you have others that feel that uh, Jiang Zemin was genuinely committed to all of the reforms that took place under his leadership, up to and including China's accession into the World Trade Organization. And if I could just interrupt, that has been seen historically as one of the turning points, uh, both for Chinese economic history and the relationship between the US and China. The US getting behind the idea of inviting China into the WTO. Yeah, well, it was it was really seen at that point as something that that was that was a win-win. Keep in mind that at this point, no one had really seen China as as a threat. The all of the negative coverage of China really at uh, up to that point was 
was kind of focused on 1989 around Tiananmen Square, the crackdown on, on students. And, and I think once you get well into the 1990s, when you're talking about uh, negotiations with China over entering the WTO, I, by that time, really, that memory had faded. It was, it was something that was just kind of relegated to, to history books. And there was nothing that China was doing uh, that had seemed to be in any way a threat to American national security or American national security interests. So in that kind of environment, it's really the, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, that, that body that represents just about all of the huge American multinational companies that were fully behind this idea that, that it would benefit everyone for China to join WTO. And I think that was, that was reinforced by the face of Jiang Zemin. Not only Jiang Zemin, but also Premier Zhu Rongji, who was part of the leadership team. Both of these men had really taken a, a moribund economy and started shaking it up in ways that uh, would have been unheard of 10 years earlier. And I think you had so many stakeholders in, in the U.S., you know, not only, I think, industry and multinational companies looking to make money, but at the same time, I think you had many more NGOs, people involved in uh, civil society groups, listening to the leadership of uh, Jiang Zemin and, and feeling confident that it made sense to bring China into the global uh, trading system. Well, it's interesting you talk about you know that period of time where there was this positivity about inviting China into the WTO. Fast forward to now, 2022, and in the last week, we have seen a, if not a significant, a continued escalation of the US tech war in limiting uh, China's access to semiconductor technology. Uh, but we've also got French President Emmanuel Macron in the US meeting with Joe Biden. And I understand there is some concerns within Europe about where the US is heading with this tech war and with other policies. Sure, well, uh, one of those, one of the main concerns is that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which which is a huge piece of legislation and, and probably one of the most ambitious uh, initiatives really in US legislative history in trying to force a, a move away from fossil fuels. Of course, that will require a lot heavy investment into electric vehicles as one of the many parts of this legislation. However, there are limits to the amount of foreign content that can go into electric vehicles uh, and particularly into uh, electric vehicle batteries. So there, there are billions of dollars, actually tens of billions of dollars worth of credits that will go to supporting the manufacturer of these products and the purchases of these products. But there, there are stipulations about how much of these products need to be made in the USA. Now, that has drummed up concerns among quite a few of America's allies, including the, the, the EU, that that will pretty much shut out manufacturers in Europe. And so in one of the things that came out of Biden's discussion with Macron in Washington today was Biden's acknowledgement that this is a problem. And he talked about uh, the need for some adjustments. Uh, I believe he used the word tweaks to the legislation that would prevent European manufacturers from being shut out 
of this gigantic initiative. And he specifically talked about China. He said something along the lines of this legislation was never meant to shut out our allies. It was mainly crafted to reduce America's reliance on China. So that was quite a, uh, a strong signal of support. Some of the criticism about that is that the legislation is actually very specific and it's not clear what kind of changes that Biden could make himself as the president in changing any of this. So it's it's not clear how how that will come about, but at least we do have the uh, the president issuing some measure of assurance to Macron that he's aware of this and he's going to try and fix this problem. Rob, I can't think of something that would inspire American patriotism more than the competition with China to build a better motor vehicle, given that China has this very developed industry and many companies really pumping out a lot of cheaper, reliable electric vehicles, electric cars. In the US, we have the somewhat polarizing figure of Elon Musk and his Tesla company. Is this competition, this geopolitical competition, which is now, which has always been economic, of course, being delivered upon by Joe Biden in terms of getting this edge into you know the green economy and electric vehicles? Well, I would say that in addition to the Inflation Reduction Act, which comes with huge credits and, and subsidies for that will promote the manufacture of electric vehicles, we also have the Infrastructure Act, uh, which does the same thing in many ways. It, For example, it sets aside a huge amount of money for the building out of, uh, of, of EV charging stations, as an example. And the main constraints that, that the U.S. is facing and actually, or that Biden is facing in delivering on that is, of course, the supply chains for EVs are incredibly complex. And there's, there's no way at presently, whether it's Elon Musk's Tesla or whether it's any other auto manufacturer, will not be able to extricate itself from supply chains that go through China in some way, shape or form. And that's why there's, there's a lot of uh, effort underway to get production of minerals like lithium to, to get them to start producing in the U.S. because there's very little production of that right now. At the same time, though, we've, there's going to be a push, for example, General Motors. General Motors announced earlier this year that they do, they do not intend to produce any fossil fuel-driven vehicles after 2035. So, you know, that's, that's a little more than a decade away. And that itself, when you've got a, a, a company like General Motors, which has huge market share in the U.S., if their stated intention is to manufacture only electric vehicles uh, within, uh, what, 12 years' time, then that means that the various nodes of the supply chain will respond to that in a way that they're not necessarily going to respond to the rhetoric that comes from the Oval Office, right? They're going to, when, when they see that GM is only going to produce electric vehicles, you've got companies all over the supply chain up and down that will do everything they can to service that industry, which is going to be huge. It's fascinating, Rob, and there's a lot more to come on that. But I've actually find myself at a moment here where I've got a crossover between two podcasts because we've spent all this week for the Inside China podcast talking about these protests that broke out across mainland China, but particularly in Beijing, in Shanghai, in Xinjiang, all focused on the anger over the zero COVID policies. And as I understand, you've got a story coming up about very similar protests happening in US campuses 
from mainland Chinese students. Yes, we, we do have a story coming out that looks at these protests that have emerged on campuses in the U.S. and also in Canada, by the way, where you see mainland Chinese students showing up in numbers that we haven't seen before. And what's interesting about this is that they're very much in, in response to the protests that we saw break out uh, last week uh, in China. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, it's not that straightforward because the rhetoric that we hear from these protests um, as reported by our correspondent here in D.C., Bojin Han, what she's hearing is that it's not limited to one particular stance. That is, you have many of the students who are, uh, are pushing for an end to the strict COVID policies. But you have other voices. This is attracting other elements of the dissonant community, right? So you've got Tibetans, you've got Uyghurs. You've got uh, folks from Hong Kong showing up too, and they're making their demands that have nothing to do with the COVID. So it, it's interesting to see there, there is quite a spectrum of dissent where you've got some where the focus is very narrowly on the COVID restrictions, and uh, yet others are bringing in many other issues, ranging from China's policies towards Uyghurs in Xinjiang. You also have Beijing's policies uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and you've got, at, at the same time, you've got complaints about the, the very broader ideas of, of democracy and the legitimacy of the Chinese government. And some of these demands do not sit well with some of the students who really, again, are just talking about COVID only and aren't necessarily supporting these much broader ideological calls. So you you see in, in some corners of, of these uh, protests, you'll 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 see the whole the full spectrum, and then in others you'll you'll see uh, some of the protesters more or less silent as these other calls get voiced. I think what you're indicating here is that there's a very important word to remember here, and that is the word nuance, uh, something we don't often hear in the broader American political narrative, and in, in terms of talking about China. Rob Delaney, there's so much going on, and I suspect there'll be a lot coming from you and your bureau over the next few days, the weekend on scmp.com. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Great talking to you. Hi, I'm Jasmine, podcast producer for the South China Morning Post. Don't miss our latest Inside China podcast. It's all about the protests that happened in China over the last several weeks. These protesters have been calling for an end to zero COVID. That's the signature COVID policy of President Xi Jinping. What are the political implications of all of this? I think for the Communist Party, stability is always the overriding priority. And if a certain policy is in conflict with the need to maintain stability, then changes will have to happen. You'll hear in-depth analysis, as well as eyewitness accounts of the protests in Beijing and Shanghai. I used to think that the middle-aged and elderly-aged group were not interested. But when I went to the scene, I found there were many people in this age group who were on our side. Everyone shouted slogans such as, We want freedom, not PCR tests. We want life, not PCR tests. We want thorough investigation of PCR test corruption. That's all on this week's Inside China, streaming now on your favorite podcast platform. Finbar Birmingham is our correspondent in Brussels, but has spent much of today tuned into what's happening in Beijing, I understand. Finbar, hello. Hello, Jared. 
Tell us what's going on with the European Council President, Charles Michel. It sounds like he's landed in Beijing at quite a unique moment in the history of China. He's just finished his press conference in Beijing, uh, where he's been for uh, a day of, of meetings with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, Premier Li Keqiang, and um, the head of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, Li Jiangshu. Yeah, he, he, the timing of this is is kind of crazy that uh, Charles Michel lands in, in Beijing in the middle of the biggest protests in, in China for years. Obviously, that wasn't um, something that he was aware of when the trip was confirmed in recent weeks. But, you know, it's circumstantial and it's sort of added to some of the controversy in Brussels and in other European capitals before he even left for, for Beijing this week. There were different schools of thoughts towards his trip to China. Some people thought, fine, why not? Others were, were a little bit reluctant. And I guess this just added to the mix of emotions and, 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 and opinions of people. You had some diplomats and lawmakers demanding that this be put on the agenda, that Charles Michel raise these um, protests and the subsequent police crackdown on on those gathering in, in public places in, in China with Xi Jinping. You know, so it was a trip. Let, let's say this trip had, had fairly low expectations. Having sat through the press conference, I think those were fair enough. I don't think there was a whole lot of new stuff achieved here. The um, pitch that was given to, to us journalists beforehand was that this was part of a move to sort of kickstart a new engagement with China after three years of the sort of face-to-face diplomatic circle. Michel says he has a mandate from the European Council, just to be clear who he is. I mean, he's the former Prime Minister of Belgium. He sits at the top of the European Council, which is the group of leaders of all the EU's 27 member states. So he's the person who convenes the leaders for their monthly meetings. He sets the agenda and so on. So after there was a discussion among those leaders last month about China, he he took that as a mandate to go and and, and meet with Xi Jinping. There has been a little bit of pushback against that in, in Brussels. Some diplomats say they weren't consulted from member states. Some of them were, were saying, well, you know, he shouldn't be traveling alone. He should be going with Ursula von der Leyen, who's the head of the European Commission, or Joseph Borrell, who's the top diplomat, of course, or indeed Valdis Dombrovskis, who's the director of trade. He didn't go with any of those. There's no love but loss between the council and the commission. He and von der Leyen famously don't get along very well. But anyway, that sets the scene. And then, of course, you have as there always is, pressure to raise issues such as human rights, pressure to raise issues such as the anti-COVID protests that in some instances have been even seen some people call for for President Xi Jinping to step down. So, so the expectation there is that the bar is quite low. He goes there and raises all of these issues and he did that. So he went there and he talked about human rights. He talked about Taiwan. He talked about protests and uh, China's COVID lockdowns. He also talked about the areas in which the European Union and its members want to engage, things like climate change, things like uh, global health, things like debt reduction. He talked about economic grievances. He talked about trade grievances. So in that regard, he ticked all of the the boxes. Um, Finba, can I just jump in there and ask, what boxes did Xi Jinping want ticked from this meeting? Why did he invite Charles Michel into his, his office, so to speak, for this meeting? I wouldn't profess to know what goes on inside uh, Xi Jinping's head, nor the inner circles of of Chinese politics. However, if you think about how this meeting came about, both men had a brush by at the G20 
Leaders Summit in Bali a couple of weeks ago, Charles Michel really wanted to have a sit down meeting with C in Bali. Uh, he was knocked back. They said no, but they did say see you in Beijing on December first. That's that's today. Bear in mind that in Bali, she had FaceTime with the Dutch leader, with the Spanish leader, the Italian Prime Minister, and so on. So there was a whole whole raft of diplomatic meetings. Uh, he didn't necessarily need to meet uh, Charles Michel there. However, he was happy to meet him in Beijing. Why why was that? I, I'm not 100 sure, but I suppose. He's happy to see that the European Union, after a fairly turbulent period, does want to engage. That's fair to say. Uh, There's more of an appetite now than there has been over the past year or two. I think that's uh, for for a number of reasons, some of them economic. Europe is in a fairly perilous position. Recessionary winds are blowing very strongly. Inflation, although it dropped this month, is still running at 10% across the eurozone. There's political reasons. The United States has been (laughs) causing a lot of consternation here in Brussels and in other parts of Europe. Joe Biden's flagship economic policy, which as an Irish person, I will never really accept, is is called the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, has really annoyed a lot of people here who who think that it could spark a new EU-US trade war. Basically, he's offering a whole load of subsidies for the green industry and threatening to have a lot of European companies relocate to America in order to take advantage of those. So that hasn't gone down too well. There's also the the factor of the United States slapping export controls on uh, most of the semiconductor materials produced in America and demanding that European countries follow suit. So you've got a fallout there involving the Netherlands, which is the home to ASML, the premier manufacturer of semiconductor making equipment. Uh, they say, we're not going to follow the United States. You can't bully us on this. So the bonhomie that characterized the US-EU transatlantic relationship following the Russian invasion of Ukraine has sort of worn off. And in in light of that, a greater effort to to reach out to China, to sort of nail down this strategic autonomy, this very ill-defined concept. So I think in in that context, that's why we're seeing, partly why we're seeing this um, stream of diplomacy, this flurry of of, uh, shuttle diplomacy between Beijing, Brussels, other European capitals. And at the same time, it's worth pointing out that the European Union is also trying to toughen its stance on China at the same time as reaching out. We'll, we'll, we'll learn more about, about this tomorrow. We were sort of feeding off scraps today, a press conference out of Beijing that really didn't deliver very much. It was, you know, pretty standard stuff, but we should hear a little bit more about what happened in these meetings tomorrow. Well, let me just wind back to one specific thing you picked up because we saw from the US this week a significant escalation, or do we say just another escalation in this tech war? This move to limit China's access to the technology to make semiconductors. And as you rightly point out, the company from the Netherlands, ASML, makes that one type of machine. The US makes the software and there's other companies around the world. But the US has unilaterally declared that no other country in the world can sell these kinds of things to China. How much pushback is there? Is it just coming from the Dutch or are there other countries starting to get concerned about the Biden administration's approach to the semiconductor industry? I think the Dutch are the main ones because they're the ones who who stand to lose because their company is, is selling this to China. But I think broadly speaking, there's there's always been some reluctance in Europe to follow the United States uh, down a very hard line on China, even under the Biden administration, who they see is much more engaging than the Trump administration. Uh, the simple fact being, we don't, they don't know what's next. You know, they, they can see that perhaps at the next election, there could be another Trump in the White House, it could be the same Trump, it could be 
another Trumpian figure, but that the sort of alliance that has been strengthened since the election may not be around forever. Some of the stuff that's going on now around these export controls and around the Inflation Reduction Act, that's the kind of thing that the EU has been sort of pointing to what might happen in the future. You know, this rhetoric of of Joe Biden's about building alliances, rebuilding alliances, it all looks very sort of flimsy whenever his supposed number one ally in the, in the, in the European Union isn't sort of uh, considered when he goes about policies like that. So I think, broadly speaking, the European Union is not united on any issue. On the United States, you have the Baltics, uh, Poland, the Czechs, and so on, very, very pro-US, very, very hard line on China, on Russia, and so on. But big industrial powers like France, Germany, and then, of course, the Netherlands you mentioned are not very happy with this. The the, the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, last week comparing the, the US Inflation Reduction Act to China's economic policy. And China's been doing this kind of globalization for years, and now we've got the United States following suit. You know, it doesn't look great, and Emmanuel Macron is in Washington this week. I'm sure that they'll be trying to come to some sort of an agreement on that. They want European firms to be exempt, to be sort of considered as American so that they can benefit from such subsidies as well. So it's all a little bit messy at the moment and it's happening at a a tricky time. Obviously, the the invasion of Ukraine is running into the, the, the sort of 10th month now. Is there is there unity on on anything? It's 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 a tricky time. And I know it's been done to death as a uh, motif in journalism, ripping off a TV show. But winter is coming, and there's that pressure about uh, energy, energy prices, and also watching Xi Jinping publicly reinforce his need or his desire to build a deeper energy relationship with Russia. I can only assume there was a lot of rhetoric pointed towards Charles Michel about him raising the idea with Xi Jinping to speak with Vladimir Putin about this war and finding some sort of peaceful solution. Yes, that was, uh, we, you know, that was the number one item. The, the way it was put to us was number one, geopolitics, number two, economic issues, number three was global issues. So that was such as climate change. And of course, Russia is the top geopolitical issue. And, and Charles Michel again uh, said that he asked China to use its influence to stop the war in, in Ukraine. I mean, this is what they've been saying since the day after the invasion and so far, we haven't seen too much inclination from Beijing to to help out. You know, Chancellor Schultz went there last month and uh, secured a commitment or an opposition to to nuclear weapons, uh, which was, I think, already Chinese policy anyway. But it was it was certainly heralded as a bit of a breakthrough. Charles Michel got the same. You know, he was asked in the press conference, "Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about whether China will indeed follow through on these requests that you keep making?" And he didn't answer the question. You know. I I do think that there's some realism in, in Brussels. I don't think anybody really expects China to, to at this point, do too much more. I guess that the point is that they don't want to do any less. They don't want them to do any less. They don't want, they don't want China to actively start supporting Russia militarily or with weapons. So as it was put to me this week, look, Xi Jinping has been off the scene for three years, almost. Um, he has surrounded himself with loyalists doesn't necessarily hear, necessarily hear these things all the time. So, you know, hitting back at the criticism of Charles Michel going there without any sort of, uh, you know, overall, the coming back without any, any real deliverables, is it worth 
as many European leaders going there as possible and sitting down with Xi Jinping and telling him these things face to face. He doesn't hear that every day. So that's in, in one regard, mission accomplished, you know, if, if that's what the, what the aim indeed is. You know, so I think that they will keep talking about this, even if the expectation is fairly low uh, as to what China may do. And as long as China isn't actively helping Russia, I think that they'll be fairly, fairly content with that. Now, Finbar Michel was speaking to China uh, in his meeting with Xi Jinping, but there's another meeting going on speaking about China, and that's this strategic dialogue. Can you explain a bit more about what's going on there? That's the yes. That's every six months. Um, you have uh, strategic EU-US dialogue on China, where they basically sit down and discuss ways in which they can cooperate on China policy. Um, now, as we've already covered, there are greater issues in the relationship that have have kind of reduced the space to collaborate on much. The Inflation Reduction Act and the export controls issue. It reminds me very much of the AUKUS scenario from last year, where the US signed a deal with Australia to, to sell a load of nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, and it went down like a lead balloon here in, in Europe because they were consulted and it meant that a French deal on submarines was scuppered. There was not much sympathy from the French, but the overall implication of Europe being sort of left watching from the sidelines wasn't very pleasing for, for folks here. So I think this meeting in Washington will be to sort of see see where the space still lies. Next week, you also have the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Council, which they talk about things such as, lo and behold, export controls. So Stefano Sanino will be chairing from the EU side. That's Joseph Burrell's number two. Wendy Sherman will be chairing from the US side. They'll be talking about things like collaborating in, in third places. So Africa, for example, you know, how can they work together to counter China's presence there and to rival China for, I guess, you know, building infrastructure and things like that. They'll be talking about things such as disinformation. And of course, they'll be talking about things like Taiwan and, and, and Russia. You know, speaking to, to people close to Sanino this week, there is an expectation that they can maintain things, keep the show on the road, despite all of these other issues, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act and the, you know, the export controls issue. We'll see about that. It's a sort of date in the calendar that happened to fall on the same day that Beijing invited Charles Michel to speak to Xi Jinping in China. Um, is that a coincidence? It would be very smart from the, from the Chinese to maybe arrange those on the same day. Um, but but we, we don't know. That's pure speculation. Well, it's been a very busy day and what seems like a headlong rush towards the end of the year. There's a lot more to come. I suspect Finbar Birmingham in Brussels. We will, of course, look for your upcoming analysis and breaking news stories, which you always seem to do after we record this podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jared. That's all for this week's episode. I have a strong feeling by the time we upload this episode, things will have changed once again. And it's another great example of needing to remind you to check in with the latest developments on all things China and all things international geopolitics on our website, stmp.com. And if you can make it through the sea of bots and various trolls, you can still find us on Twitter at SCMP News. You can find me at J underscore what. Now, we always have a quick check of the On This Day file to see what historical coincidences and incidents we can find. If you can remember this day in 2016, the then President Donald Trump made a phone call to a particular leader, which got him into a lot of trouble. Can you remember who that was? Stay safe, stay up to date. And if you're listening to this in mainland China or the USA, stay warm. I hear it's getting a bit chilly. <laughs>